Hello, and welcome back to the Iowa Type Theory Commute. I'm Aaron Stump, and we are talking about the Curry-Howard isomorphism. And last episode, we talked about the Curry-Howard isomorphism for classical logic, which sounds crazy that you could have such a thing. And it was just an amazingly cool discovery in this 1990 Popple paper by Timothy Griffin uh, that you could do this. You can give a computational interpretation to non-constructive derivations and to non-constructive logic. And in a sense, this is really totally shocking and surprising because all these computational interpretations of logic are based on some form of simplification of proofs. That you can start with a proof and you can simplify it. And this process in logic is, well, it depends. There's different ways of setting up your proof system for your logic. Uh, one of these ways is called natural deduction. And there, the process of simplifying a proof is called normalization. And another way to set up your proof system is in sequent calculus. It's a different way to, to organize proofs. And there, the process is called cut elimination. Okay, so in either case, though, and though these are good topics to dig into more another time, but in either case, the point is, you've got a proof, and already logicians, before any people thought of the Curry-Howard isomorphism, they already understood that we could have some forms of inference, you know, so we could have some, some proofs, and we look at them as mathematical objects. This was sort of the, the idea of proof theory that emerged from David Hilbert and his students, uh, that that we could study proofs as mathematical objects using the tools of mathematics to think about proofs and, and reasoning principles this way. And so we could, we have some proof and there are some patterns of inference that are sort of silly or redundant and we can simplify the proof by getting rid of them. And we can talk more about that. That's a good thing to talk about more a little later. But what I wanted to say now is that uh, it was known how to do those kind of proof simplifications for constructive logic and for classical logic, that is, for non-constructive logic. This stuff was already known. So it's not really too shocking that there should be some computational interpretation of classical logic. Now, I think, I guess I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure. I imagine that if you looked back at those cut elimination, let's say, for classical sequent calculus, I'm not 100% sure you're going to find the exact form of reduction that Griffin discovered. I, I actually don't know. And part of the reason for that, no, I guess it probably depends on your formulation of classical logic. If you have a formulation of classical logic that has the law of excluded middle as an axiom, then I'm not sure that you're going to get out the same sort of thing that Griffin discovered. Because it's just that's just an axiom. It just says magically we can do this. And it doesn't, from an axiom like that, you don't really get a good sense of how to simplify a proof that's involving that axiom. But there are other ways to set up classical logic that, inference rules, you know, proof rules for classical logic that don't need the law of excluded middle. They, you can derive the law of excluded middle from them, but they, they just are devised a little bit differently. And in those, I imagine you would find that the cut elimination or proof normalization process is essentially what we get for under, you know, it's essentially the control operator interpretation 
that I mentioned last time where we say, you know, if you have the proof of the law of excluded middle, it's this funny thing that just tells you whenever you ask it, hey, please tell me whether this property P is true or false. It says, you know what, brother, it's false. <laughs> and you're left holding this negative information, not P. You've got a proof of not P. And as I said last time, what can you really do with that? You know, in, in real life, we use negative information to rule out some possibilities. But if you just have a stark fact in general that says, oh, this is something is false, really the only way to make use of that is if you had some assumption or some other proof that it was true, and then you could combine the, the proof of P and the proof of not P, and you get a contradiction. And as I was explaining, under the Curry-Hout isomorphism, what the law of excluded middle will do is basically say, oh, cool, you know, you contradicted my, you sort of took the bait. I had this, I gave you this proof of um, not P, and you combine it with the proof of P, and I'm going to take that proof of P and go back in time, and where you asked me, is it P or not P, I'm going to tell you, I know now that it's P, here you go, here's your proof of P. So, and that's a good segue to what, that little review is a good segue to what I wanted to mention this time, which was that the, I used to think that the computational interpretation of classical logic was really cool. I still think it's really cool. But let me rephrase. I used to think it would be practically really, could be really useful. And the reason is that non-constructive reasoning, classical reasoning, is more powerful than constructive reasoning. I'm sorry, constructivists, but you know this too. There are things you can prove non-constructively that in our present state of knowledge, we cannot prove constructively. So there are theorems of mathematics, whether interesting or artificial or whatever, but there are definitely theorems of mathematics that currently have classical proofs, but no, do not have constructive proofs. And this is, you know, this is a surprising fact, but uh, what it means is that for, uh, for reasoning, if you just want to do reasoning, it would be nice to have cl classical logic in your toolbox. And this is exactly what sort of David Hilbert's, as I understand from reading a little about this, attitude towards his old advisor, Kronecker, who was some kind of proto-constructivist and insisted that everything had to be constructive. And Hilbert was basically saying, but we can prove more theorems this without if we're not restricted to be constructive and perhaps we can give simpler proofs of theorems easier proofs of theorems even in the case where there is a constructive proof a non-constructive proof can be can be simpler and that sounds like I'm praising non-constructive reasoning and I kind of am because we can we can prove more stuff with it on the other hand the proofs are less informative constructive proofs give you more interesting information about your theorem so where you have a constructive proof it's almost surely to be preferred to some non-constructive proof. And in a sense, non-constructive reasoning kind of hides our ignorance. Just remember, think back if, uh, however many episodes ago to where we talked about the proof of this thing about there are two irrational numbers, A and B, such that A to the power B is rational. Well, the non-constructive proof of that hides, it doesn't tell you what A and B are. It sort of gives you two possibilities, but it doesn't specify which one really is true. And... <clears throat> So, and there are constructive proofs of that theorem, by the way, that, that definitely do give you, and then they're not hard, they're easy constructive proofs of that theorem that give you two rational numbers, A and B, such that A to the power of B is rational. So, the, the non-constructive reasoning kind of hides your, 
your ignorance. It's a super easy proof, um, but it doesn't. It's not very informative. So anyway, but so for reasoning, I used to think, and I still do think, um, that it would be nice to have classical reasoning as a tool you could apply. Uh, it might be particularly useful in reasoning about programs that might diverge because maybe you need to do some kind of reasoning based on whether or not the program diverges, and for that, you won't be able to do that constructively. You can't do a case split on whether this program terminates or doesn't terminate because that is... If you could do that constructively, you'd be deciding the halting, you'd be solving the halting problem, and that's a problem that's provably uh, impossible to solve. So, <clears throat> algorithmically, and so, um, so that classical reasoning could be really good. Classical logic could be really good for reasoning, but and so I, I thought before, kind of well. So you might want that for reasoning, and if you're gonna use the Curry-Hard isomorphism, then presumably that means you sort of want this computational classical type theory is kind of what you want because you're going to write, you would like to have a single language for programming and proving. So why wouldn't you want to have, you know, if you're going to accept this, this kind of control operator sort of interpretation for classical logic, why, why wouldn't you want to have it for your programs? And in fact, we actually do want to have control operators for programs. Lots of, you know, lots of ink has been spilled about the utility and theory and whatever of, having these kind of operators like call with current continuation, call ZC, or, or exceptions, or other things like that. So, But now I've become quite convinced that in its sort of full generality, we would not really want to have this kind of thing for programming. And uh, not, not that I'm, 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 a, I'm in favor of control operators for programming, but this full sort of computational classical type theory where you can do these kind of funny case splits on anything you want because here's here's why. <clears throat> here's my argument against this for practical programming and why Sedil, the tool that we're working on here, doesn't doesn't let you do this sort of thing. Uh, say you're a programmer and you say, wow, I've got this law of excluded middle thing. I can just split on whether crazy stuff is true or false. I don't really get how it works, but I'm going to do a case split on whether this program halts, terminates or not. And the, the language says, go right ahead, you can. And you say, awesome. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to split. If this program terminates, I'm going to print zero. And if it doesn't terminate, I'm going to print one. Kind of amazing. I've solved the halting problem. You guys, you theoreticians are full of it. It's easy to solve. Here you go. And <laughs> why does that not work? Well, it doesn't work because, as we said, the law of excluded middle is going to say, oh, you want to know whether that program halts or not? It doesn't halt. Here you go. Here's your evidence. And the, see, the sneaky thing is, your program is actually ignoring the evidence. It's just saying, oh, okay, somebody's either going to tell me it halts or it doesn't halt, and whatever it, you know, I'm not going to make use of the evidence that it gives me that it halts or it doesn't halt. I'm just going to, um, I'm just going to proceed and do something, but I'm not going to make use of that evidence. And sort of that failure to make use of the evidence is there's sort of a missing connection between the output. So you're just gonna, your program's just going to print one for every program you give it, which obviously doesn't make sense and isn't right, and it's sort of confusing. It's, just, it's, it's sort of a misleading thing that you're, it looks like you can use an oracle to decide crazy things. You get some value you can split on, but it's just always going to be the negative case. <laughs> and if you ever managed to contradict you know, if you ever actually use the evidence so that that negative case, 
you know, when you call the law of excluded middle, it's going to say, here's your proof that, that this program doesn't halt. And you're basically going to just going to, as I said, you're going to ignore that in print one. But if you did actually try to make use of that, and you found yourself in some situation saying, hey, I just realized I'm in some funny case where actually, no, that thing does terminate. Then the control aspect is going to kick in and you're going to roll back time and go back and make use of that, that evidence that the program does terminate. And so the problem you really get with this, I think as a viable way of programming is that everything you do has to be sort of indefinitely revisable because you can't just assume, oh yeah, you know, the thing told me that P is, that P is false and so therefore it really is. It, it gave you this funny provisional thing <laughs> and it's basically just baiting you, waiting for you to give it a, a proof of, of the, the positive property. And so, you know, if you print one out, you really should be printing out one saying, well, the answer is one unless, unless it turns out that the thing really did terminate and then the answer is zero. You know, so you can't, you can't program that way. You can never commit to anything because everything you're doing is sort of subject to this proviso that we, the, the, the programming runtime might need to backtrack, uh, you know, <laughs> what at every point and you can't program that way. At some point you have to be able to commit and say, this is my final answer. I'm not, it's not sort of provisional or contingent on anything. So anyway, so that's why I think that computational classical type theory, again, in its sort of full generality, is not sensible for mainstream programming um, or any programming. It's, it's useful to have control operators. It's useful to have classical reasoning. It's useful to have dependent types and, and the Curry-Hyde isomorphism that sort of combine all this. But that particular combination where it looks like I have oracles in my program, that's not good. And I don't think we should do that. So <laughs> that's my two cents on the matter. Anyway, um, I've reached my destination, so thank you very much for listening, and talk to you again soon.